this not dead Jesus stuff, is it true? And that's an important question. In fact, that's the most important question. Here on this Easter Sunday morning, I want to share with you six areas of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to see. When you consider all of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, it just makes the most sense. When you consider all the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, it just makes the most sense. Now, here's what I want you to think about. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true just because we want it to be true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true just because your grandmama told you it was true. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true just because preachers today all over the world are going to tell people it's true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is only true if the evidence supports it. So this morning we're going to look at evidence. Look at the evidence of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. We begin by looking at our focal text, which is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, in my former book, Theophilus. Now, you may think Theophilus was an individual that Dr. Luke was writing to. You remember Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And he addresses this to Theophilus. Theophilus is not an individual. The word means lovers of God. So he says, in my first book, or former book, Lovers of God, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So let's begin with the first area of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, the empty tomb of Jesus testifies to the reality of the resurrection. The empty tomb of Jesus testifies to the reality of of the resurrection. Look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 16. Why Mark? I could have chosen Matthew or Luke or John's gospel too. I chose to take Mark's gospel on this because his resurrection account was the first one written. So Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint the body of Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed or afraid. Don't be afraid, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go now and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you shall see him, just as he told you. The Gospel of Mark is the earliest of the resurrection accounts that we have. It, along with the three others, claims that the tomb was empty. The burial tomb of Jesus was empty. But, of course, to assume that the burial tomb was empty, you've also got to first presume that Jesus was dead. Do you know there's some folks out there that don't believe that Jesus ever died on the cross? Most people, it's called the swoon theory. They believe that Jesus just swooned. He fainted on the cross. And they thought he was dead. And they put his body in the tomb. And the cool freshness of that tomb revived him. And he went to live on. It's called the swoon theory. But very few people believe in that anymore. As a matter of fact, no scholar believes in that. Because people nowadays understand much better the process of crucifixion. 
Dr. Alexander Metherell, who a man who is not only a medical doctor but also has his doctorate in engineering, has shown us, of course, that it is not possible for someone to live through crucifixion the way the Romans practiced it. It began with a flogging. Forty lashes minus one with a whip supplied with pieces of bone, glass, and metal that would so devastate the victim that many crucifixion victims never even got to the cross. As a matter of fact, this flogging was called the half-death because its victims were half-dead when it was over. Many of them never made it to the cross. And the second step of that three-step crucifixion process was crucifixion proper, the tying or nailing of the victim to the cross. The victim is already in very bad shape, critical condition because of the loss of massive amount of blood as well as the shock that has overcome their body. And now they're tied or nailed to a cross upon which they must lift themselves up, either push themselves with their feet or legs, pull themselves up with their arms in order to breathe every time. For in crucifixion the chest was in such a position that you could not breathe unless you picked yourself up. At some point in time, the victim would become exhausted and could no longer pick himself up and he would suffocate to death. But the Romans made sure they were dead. That's the third step. Third step in crucifixion was to ensure that the crucified victim was dead. Why? Because if the crucified victim was allowed to come down from the cross still alive, then the next people to be crucified would be the executioners that were supposed to have done the job right. Now, they made sure they were dead. Most of the time, they broke their legs. They could no longer push themselves up and breathe. If they thought they were already dead, they did what they did to Jesus. They took a spear and rammed it through his heart. That'll make you dead. It sure did. Jesus was already dead, but that ensured the death. You see, friend, you can go to the mountains and learn about the majesty of God. And you can go to the ocean and learn about the power of God. You can look up on a clear Georgian night at the stars and learn about the infinity of God. But there's nowhere in the universe, nowhere else in all the universe, that you can go to learn about the love of God except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was there He paid the penalty for our sins. And that's the greatest love that mankind has ever known. You know, there's no possibility that Jesus was not dead after His crucifixion. His body was placed in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. He was a very well-known and well-liked member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. If this story were false, he would have stopped it in its tracks. He had the authority to do that. But he never protests that Jesus has escaped the tomb. A huge disc-like stone was rolled down a chisel-carved groove to seal the opening of the tomb. The Roman soldiers, under threat of death, were placed there to guard the tomb with their very lives. And thus guard the body of Jesus. All of that. And still the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday morning. And then the second area of evidence about the resurrection, number two, the eyewitness accounts testify to the reality of the resurrection. The eyewitness accounts testify to the reality of the resurrection. Each of the four Gospels has an account, of course, of the resurrection of Jesus. These four accounts have consistency in their primary or major details while they offer diversity in their secondary or minor details. In other words, they all agree that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the tomb was empty, and that certain people were witnesses to His resurrection. Those are the primary details. 
In the secondary details, details like exactly which women were there, these narratives may differ. Why is that important? It's important because it's good evidence that there was not collusion among the apostles. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, shares from his own experience as a journalist in a law court. He says, sometimes while covering criminal trials, I've seen two witnesses give the exact same testimony down to the nitty-gritty details, only to find themselves ripped apart by a defense attorney for having colluded before the trial. In other words, they got together and got their story straight. Now, if, if they had gotten together and got their story straight, what we'd have in the four Gospels would be four exactly the same stories down to the most minor details of each story. That's not what we have. We have four stories that agree in their major detail, but are different in their minor or secondary details. They didn't get together and get their story straight. Three of them did not plagiarize off the fourth. No, these stories are true and wonderful accounts of a miracle called the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Greenleaf, the Harvard Law School professor whose story from doubt to faith I'll share with you at the end of today's message, studied the consistency and diversity of the four gospel writers, and this was his conclusion. He said there's enough of a discrepancy or diversity to show that there could have been no previous concert or collusion among them, and at the same time such substantial agreement or consistency as to show that they were all independent narrators of the same great transaction. In other words, their stories differ a little bit, but they all tell basically the same story. And there are other appearances of Jesus. Remember those post-resurrection appearances? Luke chapter 24, the two men... Two disciples on the road to Emmaus meet Jesus and don't know it's Jesus until they finally are, have that revealed to them. In John chapter 20, the disciples see Jesus. All except Doubting Thomas are there, you remember? A week later, they see Jesus again and Doubting Thomas is there this time and he's no longer Doubting Thomas. We see also in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus meets with His disciples in Galilee, gives them their marching orders to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. We see in John chapter 21, where Jesus meets on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee with His disciples. And there's Peter. Peter's the one who boasted, Lord, though everybody else may forsake you, I never will. And Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you still think that you love me more than the rest of these? Peter's... Renewed and restored to the love of Christ. Both the integrity and the abundance of the resurrection accounts testify to their authenticity. Then thirdly, the transformation of the apostles from cowardly deniers to courageous proclaimers testifies to the reality of the resurrection. Think about the cowardice of the twelve on that fateful night. When Jesus was turned over to the soldiers, the Bible tells us that Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. And the rest of the disciples, save John, ran as far away from Jesus as they possibly could. But then comes the resurrection of Jesus. And 40 days later, these same cowardly deniers are standing in Jerusalem. The same city where they six weeks before had crucified Jesus. They're standing there and they're courageously proclaiming Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Look at what Peter says on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
beginning with verses 14 and 15. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. Men of Israel, verse 22, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. And he finally concludes with verses 36 through 38. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to their hearts and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What could possibly account for the transformation in those cowardly deniers and make them courageous proclaimers? Nothing other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ could account for that change in these men and these women. I've always loved the poem called The Psychologist by the World War I British chaplain, G.A. Stuttered Kennedy. Kind of funny. At least I think it's funny. You may not think it's funny. It goes like this. He takes the saints to pieces and labels all the parts. He tabulates the secrets of loving, loyal hearts. He probes their selfless passion and shows exactly why the martyr goes out singing to suffer and to die. The beatific vision that brings them to their knees, he smilingly reduces to infant fantasies. The Freudian unconscious quite easily explains the splendor of their sorrows and the pageant of their pains. The manifold temptations wherewith the flesh can vex, the saintly soul are samples of Oedipus complex. His reasoning is perfect. His proofs as plain as paint. He has but one small weakness. He cannot make a saint. Who then can make a saint? Only the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ can make a saint. You say, friend, what's a saint? Some people, many Christians are put off by the word saint. A saint is simply a sinner who's been transformed by the love and power of the resurrected Christ. That's all a saint is. A sinner who has been transformed by the love and power of the resurrected Christ. So the transformation of the apostles from cowardly runaways, denying Christ to courageous proclaimers willing to die for Christ, testifies to the reality of the resurrection. And fourthly, the fourth area of evidence, the birth and growth of the Christian church testifies to the reality of the resurrection. The birth and growth of the Christian church testifies to the reality of the resurrection. In chapter 2 of the book of Acts, where we were just reading a moment ago, beginning with verse 41, it says, Those who accepted His message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts and praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian church would never have existed. This church would not be here. You would not be here this morning apart from the resurrection 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' followers, like those of other martyred religious leaders, would have simply returned to their dull and meaningless lives. But like the transformation we saw in the last point, when the resurrected Jesus gets a hold of your life, then people see a vibrant and growing Christian. And when the resurrected Jesus Christ gets a, bunch of, gets a hold of a whole bunch of lives, they see a vibrant and growing church. That's what God wants. He wants a vibrant and growing church based on people who are absolutely convinced of the reality of the resurrection and filled with the Spirit of God so that God might work in our midst and do great things among us. Edith Burns was a wonderful Christian woman who lived in San Antonio, Texas. She was a patient of Dr. Will Phillips. In fact, she was his favorite patient. She had a way of introducing herself to people. She'd say, hello, my name is Edith Burns. Do you believe in Easter? People would often respond that they believed in Easter egg hunts and Easter eggs. And they went to church sometimes. And that would give her the opportunity to share her faith about the true meaning of Easter. One day, Dr. Phillips walked into his clinic with a heavy heart because he had to tell Edith that she had cancer and was not going to live a lot longer. He expected her to be shocked, but instead she said, Why, Dr. Will, shame on you. Why are you so sad? Do you think God makes mistakes? You've just told me that I'm going to see the Lord Jesus, my husband, and my friends. You've just told me that I'm going to celebrate Easter forever. And here you are having difficulty giving me my ticket. Edith continued coming to Dr. Phillips. Just after New Year's, Edith took a turn for the worse and had to be hospitalized. And she said to Dr. Phillips, I know I'm not going to live a whole lot longer, but while I'm alive, I'd like to do the best job I could for the Lord. Would you make sure that the nurses who come to see me and and help me, would you make sure that they need to hear the Easter story? Because I'd like to make sure they hear it. Dr. Will made sure of it. Several women came to Christ through Edith's witness in that hospital room. Everyone on her floor was so excited with Edith that they called her Edith Easter. Everyone except for Phyllis Cross. Phyllis Cross was the head floor nurse. She'd been a nurse in an army hospital. She'd seen and heard it all, and she wanted nothing to do with a religious nut like Edith. One day, Phyllis felt a strange draw to Edith's room. She walked into that room, of course, and sat down on Edith's bed and said to her, Edith, you've asked everybody here the question, do you believe in Easter? But you've never asked me, why not? And she said, well, Phyllis... The Lord has told me that this is your special day. And I've been waiting on you to ask me to tell you that story. But since you have, here it is. And she shared with her the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Phyllis, right there in that hospital room, opened her heart to Christ and gave her life to Him and knew the joy of salvation. A few days later, on Easter Sunday morning, Phyllis brought some Easter lilies to take to Edith's room. And when she walked in, Edith was in bed. Her Bible was open in her lap. Her hand was pointing to a passage in John chapter 14. There was a sweet smile on her face. And when Phyllis went to pick up Edith's hand, she realized that Edith was dead. Phyllis took one look at that dead body, then lifted her face toward heaven, and with tears streaming down her face, she said, Happy Easter, Edith. Happy Easter. Then Phyllis Cross left that room and saw two nurses, two nursing students sitting out in the lobby area and she walked up to them and for the first time in her life she said hello my name is Phyllis Cross do you believe in Easter and she shared her faith 
See, the resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference in the world. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that you can't die ultimately. That your spirit will live on. And that you'll live with Him and be with Him. As Edith led Phyllis to Christ by telling her the Easter story, so the birth and growth of the church testifies to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Number five, the early appearance of Christian creeds testifies to the reality of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we believe we have the earliest creed of the Christian church, Paul writes these words, beginning with verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one who was born out of due time. The shortest Christian creed in the Bible is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. It's simply a three-word creed. It says, Jesus is Lord. But the earliest Christian creed we believe to be the one that I just read a moment ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. First of all, it's communicated in the language of a creed. It's in creedal language. In verse 3, Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you. Most scholars believe that Paul received this creed from James, the half-brother of Jesus, who came to be the leader of the Jerusalem church, and from Peter as well. You see, after Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, he tells us that he went to Jerusalem and he met with the apostles. And we believe it was there and then that James and Peter gave Paul this creed. That means this creed was in full composition within three to five years after Jesus was raised from the dead. Some scholars say within two years after Jesus was raised from the dead. Why is that important? Because we're told if you talk to people who will deny the resurrection of Christ, they will tell you it is only legendary. It is only mythical. Do you know how long it takes legends to form? 50 years, 60 years, 75 years, 100 years for a legend to form. This creed is there in three to five years. It cannot be legendary. It cannot be mythical because of its very early conception. So the early appearance of Christian creeds testifies to the reality of the resurrection. Finally, number six, and lastly, the willingness of the apostles to die martyrs' deaths testifies to the reality of the resurrection. The willingness of the apostles to die martyrs' deaths testifies to the reality of the resurrection. The word martyr, our English word martyr, comes from the New Testament Greek word for witness. Stephen was the first martyr in Acts chapter 7. James, the half-brother of John, was the second martyr of the Christian church that we know about in Acts chapter 12 where he was executed, beheaded by King Herod Agrippa. In time, both Paul and Peter would be executed by the Roman Emperor Nero. He beheaded Paul. He had Peter crucified. In fact, of the 11 original apostles that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, all but John died a martyr's death by witnessing to their faith in Christ. Now, Matthew's Gospel gives us the explanation of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day as they struggled with His resurrection. What were they going to say about it? Matthew tells us what they said about it. They said that His disciples stole His body. 
But that explanation would not then and still will not today hold water. Why not? Because these same disciples who purportedly stole the body of Jesus and then claimed that He had been resurrected from the dead were not lying. They were willing to die for what they believed. And you see, dear friend, people will not die for a lie that they know is a lie. People will not die for a lie that they know is a lie. People will die for a lie they think is true. But people will not die for a lie that they know is a lie. Chuck Coson was one of the henchmen in the Watergate scandal who later came to faith in Christ and experienced an amazing life transformation. In his book, Loving God, he has an interesting chapter entitled Watergate and the Resurrection. He makes the point that the most powerful office in the world at stake the presidency of the United States under Richard Nixon. With all the privileges of power, with the threat of imprisonment, ten men in the White House could not hold together a conspiracy for more than two weeks. Well, dear friend, if this is a conspiracy, they've held it together for 2,000 years. Amen? It's unheard of. It's not done. People sometimes say, well, the apostles hallucinated. The resurrection of Jesus. Dear friend, there's no such thing as group hallucination. I mean, hallucination is an individual thing. It happens to individuals, not groups. They all said they saw him raised from the dead. Chuck Coson, of course, applies his experience in the Watergate cover-up to the possibility that Jesus' followers would have maintained a lie about his resurrection. He concludes with these words. He says, is it really likely then that a deliberate cover-up, a plot to perpetuate a lie about the resurrection, could have survived the violent persecution of the apostles, the scrutiny of the early church councils, the horrendous purge of first century believers who were cast by the thousands to the lions, refusing to renounce the lordship of Christ? Is it not probable that at least one of the apostles would have renounced Christ before being beheaded or stoned to death? And then he concludes with these words. Take it from one who was inside the Watergate web looking out, who saw firsthand how vulnerable a cover-up is. Nothing less than the resurrected Christ could have caused these men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and Lord. He's alive, dear friend. He's alive. All of the evidence tells us he's alive. Simon Greenleaf. I mentioned earlier the brilliant professor of evidence who is credited with helping Harvard Law School first achieve its reputation for excellence. He authored the finest treatises ever written on what constitutes legal evidence. In fact, the London Law Journal once said of Greenleaf that he knew more about the laws of evidence than all the lawyers that adorned the courts of Europe. Greenleaf scoffed at the resurrection until one of his students challenged him to study the evidence for the resurrection. For himself, he methodically applied the legal test of evidence and became convinced that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an historical fact. Based on that evidence, the Jewish professor then committed his life to Christ. Later, Greenleaf said that one may say he chooses not to believe the evidence for the resurrection, but one may not say that there is not enough evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. How about you, dear friend? On this Easter Sunday morning, what is your verdict when it comes to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe it? Can you sing, can you shout this morning because you believe unequivocally the resurrection of Jesus Christ? 
Or are you still doubting? Are you still wondering? Faith is a matter of what you want. After you look at the evidence, and the evidence is sound, faith comes down to what do you want to believe? You've got good reason to believe. You've got great evidence to believe. But believing means a change of life. Believing means when Jesus gets a hold of you, things are going to be different. And most people deny the resurrection not because they don't believe it, but because they don't want to face the changes that will come with believing it. How about you? Where are you this morning? Are you willing to say, I not only believe it, but I'm willing to follow the resurrected Lord for the rest of my days? Then if you're willing to say that today, I've got a prayer for you in just a minute. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And now, Father, we pray that you'll touch hearts, that your spirit will work in lives. And this morning on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning, you will do a work in the lives of people that will transform them for all eternity. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.